Uh, this is Chuck Gadridis, and you're listening to the Bladeology Podcast. by telling people that you're being recorded. Hey, everybody, you're being recorded on the Bladeology podcast. What episode number is this? I don't remember. Um, anyway. Six. 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 See, look, this is episode see, six. Chuck should be oh, a regular. He knows more about our show than we do. All right, so eight minutes. Just delete everything before this, just for, for myself later. All right, so welcome to Bladeology podcast. Uh, I think this is our sixth episode. It's been a little while since we've done a recording. There's been a lot going on. Uh, shows have slowed down for a little bit. We've had a little time to catch up. Uh, certainly not with content. And today we'll be interviewing Chuck Gedritis, uh, a knife maker and friend of the podcast. Uh, I'm Jeremiah Burbank from PVK Vegas. Elijah Isham from Isham Blade Works. Nick Schuper from NCC Knives. And I'm Chuck Gedritis. Awesome. Uh, so let's do let's do a quick roundup. Chuck, uh, what have you been up to uh, lately in the shop? What are you doing over there? Uh, I am currently finishing up a Loveless-inspired uh, New York special folder flipping uh, flipper folder. So it's got front bolster, piece of handle material, which is green linen micarta, and then a second bolster. Um, almost like his sub styles. So that's all in pieces on my bench. I basically just need to put it together, and it's destined for blade show. And I've already started building knives for blade. Oh wow! Okay, start start early, start fresh. That sounds that sounds like a cool build. So we're in March now, so we've we've got a few months, but there's never never too early for blade show builds, right? That's right. Yeah, I don't even know anything about that. I start seven days before, and I just don't sleep. <laughs> yeah, Nick thinks it's six months out. I don't think so. Blade show. <laughs> I identify it as six months away. So it's no matter a, when it is. No matter when it it's is. It's always I, six I months. Just, I just acknowledge months. it when it's a week away, and I'm like, oh, fuck me. I guess I ain't sleeping. And oh. it works every time. It's been five years, and six years, and it's worked every time. I mean, if it's not a winning streak, don't mess with it. Uh, what about you, Elijah? What have you been up to? All the usual. Uh... Had work. Working hard, yeah. Yeah, working harder than any of you. Working uh, hard, <laughs> working hard, or barely working. Oh man. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, getting a lot of stuff ready for Blade Show. Hopefully, you'll see some prototypes. Um, you have a lot of pretty builds much on just. The bench, or? Oh yeah, I'm the shop is running, you know. Uh, pretty much just finalizing a lot of stuff to get everything ready for Blade Show. Um, a lot of uh, new stuff on the Civivi horizon. That should be pretty interesting. A um, couple Wii stuff, but yeah, other than that, just uh, finishing up some uh, some CAD work. Pretty much the usual. Sounds good. Sounds good. Nick, have you started yeah. building for Blade Show yet? What is Blade Show? Uh, it's not important. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Okay, yeah, I'll, figure, a, I'll, I'll figure it out eventually. It's a little uh, show uh, held at the KFC just outside Atlanta. It's, it's like a new thing. It's just really cool kids. Oh, KFC. It's okay. a startup show. A Mexican restaurant. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, I haven't really made, finished anything in like a month and a half because I've been... <laughs> <It's> I've, so <laughs> 
I've been prototyping. So my father is going to be a full-time employee of NCC Knives, hopefully. Uh, what's next month? April? At the start of April. Um, so I'm going to have to prototype models so I could teach him the ways of the frame lock. Like right now, I'm working on a two-inch frame lock, which is essentially my pod friction folder that I turned into a frame lock. Um, muscle prototype in my belly. So yeah, February and March has just been the month of prototype. Well, March has pretty much been the month of prototyping for me. I got to prototype both of those, make sure they're right, because ballast song is easier for me to work with my father on, and the little frame lock is easier for me to teach him how to make frame locks, since they don't cost as much. If he fucks them up, won't be as bad as a full size. Full size knife has a lot of work into it by the time block and detent is done, and a lot of cost prior to that. Um. Sounding good. That's oh, that sounds pretty. Sounds pretty productive, actually. It, it's productive. I just haven't made and finished anything for sale and made money in the month. But a lot of like new shit's going on in the shop. Unfortunately, it's what I have to do since he's waiting to get into the shop. That's no big deal. Uh, bills have a way of just paying themselves, as I understand. So it's, it's, no it's big deal. The, bills just paid themselves for the last five years. I just, I just wing it. All right. By the by, the first the money somehow in the bank, even though I didn't make anything, but it's there. Yeah, and the debt continues to rise. All right, all right, sound sounding good. So everyone's everyone's doing their thing. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of uh, I'm pumped. We have our our first guest. Uh, been meaning to talk to Chuck about his long long term involvement in the knife community and knife industry for a bit now. Uh, if everyone's not familiar, they should definitely go go check out Chuck's Instagram. Uh, it's got a very interesting feed. Lots of fishing. Lots of knives. Uh, let's jump into it, Chuck. Uh, tell us, tell us the goods, man. How, how did you get here? Where did you start? What's your What's your background? Where Where What got you into knives? Uh, I, as we know I, it, I have had a fascination with sharp objects for as long as I can remember. Uh, it's one of those things that I was five when I got my first pocket knife from my grandfather. It's a little Camp King that I still have, and from there it just went this down the rabbit hole into you know, like um, taking apart my mother's kitchen knives and regrinding the blades, putting new handles on them, turning them into throwing knives, uh, going to the flea market and buying any kind of slip joint or fixed blade that I could find. And I didn't really know what I was buying, but you know, I loved, loved them. And I started taking apart my mother's kitchen knives and my parents thought there was something a little off with me, maybe. So um, they didn't really support it right off the bat. Hmm. I've been there. They thought you were uh, touched. <laughs> <laughs> they thought maybe They're I was going to turn, turn into a serial killer. Yeah. But when I was uh, 16, I brought them to a local knife show and showed them a whole room full of people interested in knives. And they said, okay, this is definitely a real thing. And I got some power tools for Christmas, and I have been at it ever since. Now, question. Are you just saying that off the top of your head because I'm on your website on the Knife Maker's profile? Are you just <laughs> reading it word for word? No, but <laughs> I, I just remember you know, it. So You've told people, that story a few times. Yeah, yeah, so many people ask me how I've gotten started. Um, and like, like most people, I started making fixed blades and you know japanese style because it was easy to wrap the handles uh, my shop used to be in a 10 by 10 shed in my parents backyard 
Mm. Plenty of room. Ran an ex- I ran an extension cord out from the house, and every once in a while I tripped a breaker in the middle of doing something. I have to go back in and reset it and get back to what I was doing. But hey, we've all been there. I started on a 4x4 four four table. It's the same thing. Everything's connected to one surge protector, so if you turn on more than one equipment, piece of equipment, they just flew. That's right. Right, absolutely. So now, where was that? Where was that knife show? Uh, it was in Marlboro, Massachusetts. It's the Northeast Cutlery Collectors Association, um, and they still have shows. Shout out to the Marlboro show. Oh. Massachusetts. I've I've been to that show a couple times. I think I I might have seen you at that show at one point. Maybe you know Jim Siska still does that show, and he's been making knives for like forty years. Wow. And so I met him there when I was sixteen. And, you know, I am self-taught. Nobody ever said, hey, come to my shop and let me show you how to do this. So it was all a lot of trial and error. It's mm. the best way to learn, really. Uh, mm-hmm. So now, do you, how did, how did you, okay, so you started then, you got folder, folders and fixed blades. How did you get introduced into, like, your, your current style of machining or, or not machining? Because as I understand it, you're not using CNC, and you're, 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 you're pretty proud of that. You definitely say that a lot. Um, but I know that you kind of come from a machining background. Yeah, well, my, my dad was a machinist at Norton Company in Worcester. My grandfather was a machinist there. Um, so I feel like I have some machining in my blood. Um, but it's one of those things where I was so passionate about it that I just kept working at it. So let me back up a little. So when I graduated from high school, I did two years of Mass Maritime Academy where they had a machine shop there and I got to play in there a little bit. But I decided that Mass Maritime wasn't really what I wanted to do. So in 1997, I transferred to the University of Rhode Island. And in Charlestown, Rhode Island, there was a cutlery store called Cove Cutlery. And I got a job working there on Saturdays. I got to clean knives in the store and stock inventory. And really famous knife makers from the time, and this is, you know, late 90s, like Bill McHenry, Jason Williams, Ralph Silvidio, Frank Potter, Richard Wright, all these guys that were the premier custom switchblade makers of the time all used to come into the store because they were all – lived in Rhode Island. That's so cool. So that was actually my first knife show. It was in September of 1998. The owner of the store put up a tent in the parking lot, and these guys came down, and they would look at my knives, and they would kind of just kind of, hmm, yeah, you need to work on this a little. But they'd never say, oh, let me come show you how to do this. Because back then, there's no social media. There's no Internet. And everybody kept their methods and their secrets to themselves. Because if you could build a better knife than them, you were taking money away from them. Hmm. So it was all very hush-hush. Especially back then, when you were making switchblades, they were still really illegal. It wasn't like it is now, where you can just order an automatic online and have it delivered to your house. Different time. No, it still kind of is that way. Just some dealers don't give a, don't give a shit about that. Like I live in New York, and I, there's still dealers that won't ship anything to my house. 
That's gotta yeah, be a bummer. And I'm a knife maker. Super hard to find these days. Like, I'm sending these people, these dealers, knives, but they won't send them back to me. <laughs> That's kind of funny. But back then, a lot of them were so still you, illegal to actually make and own switchblades in all of these. Right. States. Yeah. Man, manufacturer laws were a lot different. Right. Even now, it's it's a weird gray area. I'm trying to read up on that, and it it's pretty weird gray area uh, when it comes to well, manufacturing the item. Yeah. Where everything is illegal. Pretty much like California. Yeah. So there was a he set up a so the owners set up a tent and everybody came and then did these guys have knives at the show or were they just sort of they were passing through like at this little gathering? They had knives at the show, um, but I had been building some knives during the summer and I brought them and it was actually the best knife show I had ever had at the time, and hmm. it was an opportunity to see some of their work firsthand and look at mechanisms and try to figure out how they made them. So what did you, what did you have at the show? Did you have folders, fixed blades, autos? I only had, I only had folder, uh, fixed blades at the time. And then I was in right around in 2000 is when I started making folders. And back then it was all art knives, everything with, Mm. Damascus blades, Damascus bolsters, fully file worked, you know, pearl or mammoth ivory handles, and they were art knives, and that's what I did for a long time. But everything I did back then was all a one-off. So I learned something new with every knife that I made. You still seem to make one-offs, though. I do make a lot of one-offs. You know, I'll cut out a blade, and I have a little piece of material left over. And I'll look at it and say, I can turn that into a folder. And I appreciate the challenge of having the design around the, the piece of material to make it work. Yeah, yeah it right. seems like you definitely sort of, yeah, you don't, you wouldn't have a, like a signature model. Like, oh, that's, I mean, the, the Yakuza has definitely gotten a fair amount of press. And I see you build that on and off more regularly. But you definitely, uh, you don't shy away from just building whatever you feel like. Well, you know, you got as a maker, it's exciting for me because it's something new and different. I mean, I build slip joints, lock, lockbacks, valley songs, automatics, liner locks, frame locks, flippers, a little bit of everything. And you don't get stuck in a rut of building the same knife over and over again. And creativity is always real fresh. Absolutely. So, um, in the two in the two thousands, you. The, during the sort of the art knife boom, when when you were making, uh, take us through take us through that uh, show wise what what you were building for that for that period. You said now were you building art knives or were you still sort of building the the more tactical? Up on up until two thousand and eight, I pretty much just built art knives. You know, um, automatics, a lot of automatics, um, and just a lot of fancy file work art knives. Uh, up until 2008, because in 2008 the market crashed and nobody was buying art knives. Mm. So, but to let me back up. So when I graduated from college, I had a degree in aquaculture. So I used to commercially grow shellfish on Cape Cod. What? Hmm. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. That's interesting. In, yeah, in, Bar- in Barstable Harbor, I used to grow uh, cohogs and oysters, and mm. That's no fun in February. Yeah, the wintertime. Oh, man, I can't imagine. Oh. So 
in September of like 2001 or 2002, uh, my parents had, I was living on the Cape, my parents sent me an article about a company in Worcester, which was Morgan Construction, which built rolling mills for the steel industry. And they had a program where they would send you back to school to become a machinist. And when you graduated, they would hire you and give you a full-time job. There you go. So um, my parents were like, this is right up your alley, you know. So I went to visit them. I had an interview in October of that year of 2001 when, and they basically hired me on the spot. I showed them some knives that I had built and they said, okay, you have some, you guys lost me for a second. What's the last thing you heard? Oh, we got some video. Uh, you were talking about yeah, making knives and the, the college accepted you in. They, they, they said you looked at, oh. We got video. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Uh, so the, the public yeah. the school, which is the Worcester Vocational High School, took me in a month after the program started. So when I went in, the kids who went to the public school who were not part of the program for Morgan Construction thought I was a narcotics officer. <laughs> well, so most legit. of them wouldn't talk to me. Um, they thought you were a cop? I thought I was a narc, yeah. Dude, that's wow. rough. That's pretty funny. But that that job and that school taught me how to run machine, all types of machinery. Lathes, surface grinders, milling machines, CNC machines. And it taught me about fit and finish and tolerances and all that stuff. And that's when I really started making folders because I had access to that equipment. And that's really when my, my folder making took off. Hmm. So now what, I mean, the, obviously the, the totally corny question is, what, what was the folder that you looked at, at when, you were, when you were messing around at school and you were like, oh, I got this, like I can totally make this? I mean, had I'm, you always been wanting to or was it the, that one model? No, it was always, a, you know, fixed blades started to get easy. So I wanted the challenge of building the folders. Okay. And one of the first things I built there as a folder was a Bally song because I used the surface grinder to mill the to grind the handles for inserts. That's dope. Mm -hmm. Nice. So, so you made a Bally song before locking a knife. Yeah. Huh. Wow, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. What was the what was the blade on that? Uh, it was probably O one. I know the collector that still has it. Oh no shit! Really? Yeah, and then from there, um, I'm trying to find the guy who still has my first because the original owner of my first frame lock doesn't have it anymore, so I can't find it. Um, sold it. What was the blade on the balance on? Uh, it was probably just a. It was a drop point, you know. And oh, I file okay. I file worked the spine of it because I was still file working knives back then. Hmm. That's pretty neat, man. So, were you flipping at the time, or you had you had just seen like that's like a very off? I don't know. I don't. I don't know that anyone's first. I had a. I, I had a cheap one of the Chinese import ones, and the handles had broken. So I had the blade. So I used the blade as a pattern for pivot hole placement and kind of design, and went from there to to rebuild it to say, all right, I can I can make one of these. Hmm. Okay, now question, you, you backtracked. Uh, can you talk more about that transition from like 2008 
to 2010 in the industry because I got into the industry at, in 09. I was like uh, 13, 14, I guess. I don't remember. But I wasn't a knife maker then. I just started to collect. So what happened? Because like, being a knife maker now for long term and trying to make this viable long term job, I'm worried because it's like the next, in my mind, next recession or the market crash, it's inevitable. It's like right around uh, the corner, possibly. Yeah. So yeah. what happened during that time? I hear about it. I've heard about, I haven't really heard about the one in 08. I have this similar old school guys like Joe Mel and Joe Pardue were telling me about the one like in the nineties and what happened there for once the whole transition of switchblades. What happened to the whole trans the whole community from that oh eight to oh nine to ten transition over well, in, in two in two thousand and eight there was the real estate market crash. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, and like real estate was like super cheap. Like people, the real world beyond the yeah, world. people lost their houses. A lot of people had uh, adjustable mortgages. So their mortgage rates would go up after seven years and they couldn't afford to pay them. So people stopped buying knives or really expensive right. knives because their discretionary cash they were holding on to because they didn't know what was going to happen to the market or if they would be able to keep their house or, or what. So back – so when that happened, you know, before then I was able to make whatever I wanted – and sell it. And mm. when the market crashed, I had to make what was going to sell and it necessarily wasn't what I wanted to make. So that's when I started making more tactical style knives, um, you know, slab scales and frame locks with speed holes. And mm -hmm. it took me a long time to really figure out how to transition from making art knives, which were long and sleek and fancy to tactical knives that were folding pry bars. So Quote, unquote, like, hard use. Or gray turds, as they used to call them, because everything was just sandblasted <laughs> on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So eventually the market has recovered, but for a good year, people weren't buying knives. I was a collector of my own knives. I was still making them, and I would put mm -hmm. them up for sale on like, blade forums. And they would just sit. And were you full time at that time? Uh, I was full time. I was well. I was a stay-at-home dad. And when my daughter was would take a nap, I'd take the baby monitor with me and go downstairs and work for a couple hours while she took a nap. And when she got up, I was done till she went to bed at 8 p.m. And then I'd go back down to the shop and work till one two o'clock in the morning and i would do that every day so wow. we jumped forward Let, let's jump back a little bit so we can keep on the timeline but um so okay so you made a ballet song you were in school and the kids around you said what about the ballet song no uh so what what was the next what was the next move from the ballet song uh it was just m moving into um frame locks basically the first one i made uh, when you would open it the, actually when you would close it the lock bar would fall off of the blade because the lock bar was too short mm. so the geometry was wrong so eventually I had to figure out that I have to shorten the tang on the folder blade to make the lock bar longer so it didn't fall off um, but it's all trial and error like I wanted to make a slip joint so I drew one up on paper 
and it would snap open great, wouldn't close properly because I didn't have the geometry of the tang of the blade correct. So I would go back to the drawing board and figure out what I did wrong, you know, go through some of my collection of slip joints that I had from when I was a kid and figure out what I needed to do to make it work properly. Sometimes I'd take apart some of the slip joints and trace out the tang pattern and then draw my own blade design on so then it would work properly. Mm-hmm. Slip joints have like a really strange geometry, it seems like. I've had trouble with them because they have that 90-degree angle that you have to get like just right. Well, it's they, not the 90-degree angle. It just you have to get – there's a certain ratio because open, close, and Yeah, and the spring center. tension and everything, yeah. It's it's the the ratio of being open to close. It took me about a year and a half to design a slip joint because like same thing as Chuck. I'm I was self taught in the beginning, so like I would just have knives in my collection. I take them apart, draw them out, start with there as a base design, make a knife. Oh, it doesn't work. Okay, where do I have to change it and go on from there until the mechanism worked? And as I was making stuff, I just same thing. I would make it all. Oh, this doesn't work. Okay, what do I have that works? Well, with the slip joints, it took me a little while to design a traditional spring back slip joint that worked. And once I kind of finally got it to work, I talked with Jesse Giraz at USN, and he kind of shared his like his information with it. And I knew that if I actually built it, it wouldn't have worked right. And because Jesse helped me with some stuff, uh, the first prototype worked great. And if like for example, if he didn't tell me that, I would probably have to make two or three prototypes. Just these simple things that, like, oh, it looks like it'll work. When you're looking at a real one in your hand, like, it looks exactly like that, but you don't realize, like, there's specific contact points that have to be right, which you won't actually always know if that's an accidental or it was meant to be there until you actually make the damn thing and you figure it out. That's absolutely right. I I build all my slip joints with a half stop, and I make the spring flush in all three positions of function, mm-hmm. which is a lot more work than just building a yeah, slip joint around a tank. It's way mm-hmm. easier to do open and close, and for design as well. Because if you need the if you need the midsection to contact and be flush with the spring, you have to you have to make sure your ratios are right. Which is why, like from what I understand, Chuck, if tell me if I'm wrong, traditionally slip joints people worked off of existing designs. Like I remember, there's like the number one pattern, number two pattern, and so on and so forth. There was not really much originality back then with the slip right. joints because they were harder to design. Now it's we recently like the new the new trend of modernized slip joints. Now you start seeing a little bit of different stuff because the guys started using CAD and they could see what's going on. But even me, I've been using CAD for about eight years, and it still took me a little while to figure to make a design that I liked that didn't look like something like something else because they all kind of generically generally look the same. You can't get too fluid. And then the blade to handle ratios have to all kind of be the same, or else the spring doesn't sit right. Correct. Yeah, getting a real wavy design, real organic looking with that spring bar is like impossible. So, when did you, what year were you starting to make frame locks? You say you, you transitioned into it, but you don't really say when. Yeah, 2007, 2008, which is when they were less expensive than the knives that I had been making. And I could make more of them and make them faster because there was less time and materials involved in each one. But it took me a while to develop a style for those that people liked, because the first few were, were just terrible. They, just, mm-hmm. they, they weren't aesthetically pleasing compared to what I had been making up to that point. And I'm and, assuming that automatics came after a normal frame lock. No, I was just making automatics um, shortly after I started making folders, because a lot of the fancy art knives I made were automatics because that's the tr- what the trend was 
And what kind of lock mechanism were you using back then? Just a liner lock with those? A liner lock with a, um, a latch release. Okay. So the locker bar. And those were all obviously oh. like um, leaf spring fire. Yes. All the ones I still make are leaf spring, no coil springs. Hmm. That's pretty impressive to, to start doing automatics that quick. Well, it's one of those things where all right, you have a, a line of lock down where you can make the mechanism work properly. Now you have to add a spring. You have to add the release. But it's one of those things that the first few didn't really work that well. You know, I couldn't get them to close properly or they'd close and a little bit of the tip of the blade would stick out of the handle because there was uh, something moving inside. You know, so it was all trial and error, but eventually you figure it out. And then now you just got to make a uh, dual action. <laughs> I've made a few dual actions. Really? Okay. Yeah, uh, I used to make one where the it looked like a screw that would hold the bolster down, but it was actually the button. Nice. So huh. it was a little covert. There's Pretty a unique. few of them out there. That's the idea, dual, dual action concealed release, right? I mean, that's nobody knows it's there. Yeah, or the I, I do a bolster release that's either that can be ambidextrous, and people don't know how to open it. Oh. So what? There's a there's a there's a pin that goes through the back, right, and connects both both bolsters. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, it seems a little complicated because I'm like, if your hands on the other side, it's a little hard to actuate. So it means you have to support the back spine so that you can move it. I'm trying to picture because then they move. Both scales move simultaneously in that kind of mechanism. No, it's just a bolster. No, they, move, they, they move independently of each other. Yeah. Oh. Even trickier. Oh, yeah. So, all right. So, most of those, you're saying those were single actions, but the dual actions obviously being even, even, even trickier. Yeah, because you have a lot more moving parts and a lot more parts you have to hide under bolsters or under scales. And you have to fit it all in the same size knife. You can't make it too thick and bulky you have to be able to fit it all in it's a lot of work a lot so, of planning what was so you're saying okay so automatics and dual actions came before the frame locks but um but liner locks must have fallen in even before the automatics yeah that that's what i you know probably the the first real folder that i built was a liner lock I'm sure all the uh, the art knives were probably liner locks, right? Or lockbacks? Yes. Yeah. No, they're all all liner locks. Nice. So when you're when you're saying art knives that were fully dressed, I mean, obviously there wasn't Mokutai back then, but um, you're talking about like the heydays of um, like carbon Damascus. Yeah. So basically, a lot of my influence from the makers that I had met in Rhode Island was what's called the New England School of Influence. And it started with guys like Wayne Balakovic and Jim Schmidt, who were all from New England and New Hampshire. And they made their own Damascus. They used Damascus blades, Damascus bolsters, and natural handle material. And that's the New England style. So any other maker who's doing that has borrowed it from those early makers. Um, there, I mean, some of these guys like um, Jim Schmidt, his knives still sell for exorbitant amounts of money. There's one that was just listed today on a dealer's website for $12,000. Holy moly. Damascus blade, Damascus bolster, and stag handle handle 
that had been split. It's kind of like a goblin folder. Huh. Oh, that sounds interesting. So now, did, did they consider those sole authorship pieces back then, or was that terminology sort of um, not quite there yet? Um, the Schmidt stuff and Wayne Valakovic. Wayne Valakovic was the third master smith ever in the ABS, and uh -huh. all that stuff that they made was all sole authorship. Hmm. Yeah, but from what I know, they didn't really use that term much back in the day, because like, I was like, oh, it was normal to make your own materials. That's like what I see. It's like a recent term now with the folder guys. They're like, oh, we make our own materials. It's great and new, and no one else does that. But like in the fixed blade industry and in the art knife industry, that was like, if you if you're not making your own materials, you ain't shit. Well, there wasn't anybody that you could go to and say, hey, can you make me some Damascus that I can buy? You had to make that's your a, own. That's, a, that's, a, that's another good point of fact. The, the chance catalog had not been invented yet, uh, and uh, a lot of those suppliers weren't there. Well, a lot of the materials that these guys used as well, like you know, in the, the mid-90s when Bill McHenry started making switchblades, you couldn't just order titanium from anywhere. You had to try to source it somewhere. Or mammoth ivory, you couldn't just go to a show and have a pick out mammoth ivory off of a table. You'd have to call somebody in Alaska, and they would send you samples or send it to you. You'd pick out what you wanted, and you would send them back the rest with a check. There wasn't a way That's for them cooler. to text you a picture of it. Um, so a uh, lot of it back then... Snail mail photos? Polaroids? Like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there were, if you wanted to see what a maker was making... You either had to call him and ask for him a brochure, and he would mail you a paper brochure, or you had to go to the show. Hmm. Old know, school. Old, real. Oh. So that's even more of like an incentive to go to a show than if, if a forger was making materials they might bring into a show. That's, a, that's an incentive to travel to one of these local shows. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's pretty cool. So, so, I mean, synthetics back then weren't available, basically. Like, sure as hell couldn't just get carbon fiber. Or no, G10, you can, like everywhere. No, you you have paper micarta, you know, and all the Westinghouse that everybody is very. Is I was just about to after. ask about that. Yeah, it wasn't mm. it, that was just everyday material back then. Wow, right. that's crazy. Should have stocked up on it. Well, Resell some of that. I so thought. Now, about, did you ever? Sorry, go ahead. I thought about stocking up on materials from Damascus makers. Because yeah. guys like Mike Norris aren't going to be around forever. Yeah, absolutely. Damn it, just signing off Mike Norris already. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's inevitable. <laughs> well, yeah. I, mean, we saw, I saw Edgling at the um, Blade Show this past year, and I, I tried to buy a bunch of stuff. Um, and it's always good to see him you know, still, still doing it. But, I mean, yeah, it's true. He's not going to be able to do it forever. That's right. Did you, the, now, so did you ever do that? Did you ever get into it and, and, and forge your, your own uh, sole authorship piece or your own Damascus? For I maybe? did. I, I, used to, I took a class at Mass College of Art with J.D. Smith on oh, how to make... Wait, Mass College of Art, like on Huntington? Yeah. No way. I totally forgot. Oh, wow. And J.D. Smith still teaches there, and he, he was teaching a Damascus class in their continuing education department. So I took a class that was six weeks on how to make your own Damascus. Wow. Yeah, but don't, you, don't you make Damascus now currently with the, the, the other dude? I do. I'm making um, 304 three, uh, 316 stainless Damascus. It's non-hardening, but it's also non-rusting. It's aesthetic. Doing it for jewelry and stuff. I saw you guys making some titanium Damascus the other day. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, we, we, can, we can. We also made some um, copper and zerk. Oh, yeah? Material. Is that technically Mokume? No. Well, I, I get. Uh, it's zerk. It's zerk. Zerk. Zerkume. Q-Zerk is what Chad Zerkume. Nichols calls it. Zerkume, boom. New material. But I think Done. it's considered Mokume, because I think generic, generically the traditional Mokume was anything consisting of brass, non-ferrous metals, like brass, coppers. Um, and it's it's not a it's not a welded process. I think Mokume, is, it's one that, and also Mokume falls under the brazed category. So like Damascus is, is you're welding it together. But like the Q-Zer- copper zerk, copper brass, you're not actually welding it together. The, the copper is melting, and you're brazing it together. I mean, so titanium's I that, not ferric. Yeah, but you're 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 welding it to okay. itself. But like, but then it goes. If you're making titanium and copper, is that is that Mokume now? Because you're brazing it together. Hmm. How is Zerkume not a thing? Because it, it's called Q-Zerk. He, it, uh, it, the Q-Zerk is Chad. Whatever you want, buddy. Yeah, if, if you made it yourself, you could call it that. But Zerkume sounds pretty awesome. We're going to copyright it and then sue people for calling it that. That's <laughs> that's happening right now. Cold Steel style. Done. Boom. It's done. I'm Googling legal the Zoom real quick? right now. Yeah, I just jump on that. Don't. No free plugs. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> no free plugs. <laughs> no free plugs. All right. No free plugs. I'm just sitting in the. Cut that out. Yeah. Ch- right Ch- <laughs> no free plugs, Jeremiah. Uh, get on that, Chuck. Uh, no, I, I might. I might start making some of my own Damascus again, just because I have the opportunity to use the equipment to do that. You know, we have a, a power hammer. We're getting a brand new Anyang I know, uh, I saw that. Press. I'm so jealous. Uh, I'm talking to Anyang about getting a 50-ton press as well, but I saw Chris, was he was getting taken delivery of his soon. Yeah, it should be here so jealous. next uh, Wednesday, I think. No, so I was looking at the Anyang 50-ton. If I'm buying, if, since I don't have a setup, if I'm buying anything, I'm just going to get the 50-ton because I've used the 25-ton for making stainless Damascus and titanium Damascus. And for the stainless, it just doesn't it, – it, it's not enough tonnage to pattern it well. Titanium 25-tons is plenty, but if I'm buying it fresh, might as well get the 50-ton. But I was looking at the Anyang, but I, I don't know if, – if I get the Anyang, the problem is I'm going to have to turn that on its side to get it into my shop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to do that because it's a lot of hydraulics. I might there. There's uh, the coal iron. Uh, coal iron also makes a cool one. They do. Uh, I could t- I could tilt theirs like a little bit and get it into my shop because it's like two inches too tall. And then there's one more. It's a red one. It's the one that Chad Nichols u- Chad Nichols uses. I forget the name, but that one's a, the it's a different frame style, so it's a lot shorter because the 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 pistons are on the bottom instead of the top. So yeah, the bottom moves up. It's an uh, Ron Claiborne H frame. Yes. yes, and the H frames I could put in my shop, so I could just slide that one right in. Nick, you just need to start tearing out some walls. Make that door wider. Yeah, that's not deal, man. So the door is thirteen feet wide. It's just the door is only seven feet high, and the only machine that I I I'd invest to get a bigger door is if I got a like a seventy thousand dollar like CNC machine center. Like my CNC, my CNC barely fit into that door. Like I I shit you not. Like you fold a piece of paper seven times and it won't it won't slide through. <laughs> it, it Leave was, it outside. It was, it's fine. It was tight. It, That's yeah, what I, credit cards I, I are for, man. Don't worry I, about I was it. like, but a credit card wouldn't have through with the gap in that door in the CNC. Six I, would though, no problem. I, I got I got worried there for a second. I was like, oh my god. 
Well, if you start forging during the winter, you wouldn't have to turn your heat on. Well, that was the thing. I was going to start forging a shit ton in the winter, and then and through the summer and the summer months, prepping down those billets and cleaning them up. So it's like it'll supplement my cost. Plus, I had a fun-ass time forging at Rob Carter's shop when I was over there. It's fun. It's been a while since I forged. I have access to a power hammer, and I did just make some stainless sand my with the power hammer. But the power hammer is not the best for the performance stainless. The, the, the shock puts too much cracking into the billet. But the power hammer would work for titanium. I don't have one. Like I said, I have access to a power hammer. Access At, uh, New Jersey. Still burn? Right? Yep. Yep. Hey, no free plugs. What? <laughs> I mentioned the charging these guys. I have, to, I, we'll I, have, I, have, I have to go there Monday. And just hit, here's an invoice. There's a plug. Uh, that'd be twenty two dollars and thirty two cents. Yeah, just billing. <laughs> That's fine. He'll 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 pay up. I remember when they turned that thing on. The floor was like just shaking, like violently. Oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot. I took you there. Yeah, I went with you and Rob. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you didn't go. Yeah, yeah. You you use that power hammer. That's not even the big one. Yeah, the floor is definitely <laughs> shake. <laughs> yeah, and just like any bigger than that one, you actually have to cut a hole in the ground. Usually, like the, to do it the right way, is you have to cut a hole in the ground, drop it into the hole, and then fill the hole with concrete. Nice. All right. Makes sense. Because if it's any bigger than that, what happens is you're actually just going to start shattering the concrete if you're sitting on it. Yeah, you have to pour a special pad for it that's reinforced yeah. with special kind of concrete. Yeah, like I, I, I legally can't have a power hammer in my shop, but I could have a press. Because I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by residential area, and uh, they would complain because their house will shake. You're talking about <laughs> small just, things, man. You're thinking pom- small, go big. Just pound, pound, pound. Like for a week, these people are thinking, it's like, earthquakes are happening or what? And eventually, they're gonna find out it's me, and I'm gonna have to get rid of my hammer. So, <laughs> so only impresses in my future. So you're Chuck. You're making. You're, you're gonna start making your own, your own materials again. Because you're you're uh, you're currently duly employed, uh, full time part time at a at a what kind of shop? Uh, it's uh, Chris Kloof Designs, and he makes custom Damascus jewelry. Uh, I you know one or two days a week there. Um, That's cool. But you know I've also learned a lot there. I've learned how to TIG weld, and today I rebuilt the the power hammer. We took it apart and cleaned it and lubed it and. Ready to go tomorrow. We're going to do some uh, forging with some twisting and uh, flattening of Damascus, and he'll turn it into rings. Mm. Yeah, he got that little water jet, little Omax system. That thing is so, so nice. It's awesome, but like it's very expensive for what it is. I got test parts made on it. What is it? Like, it, it's 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 pretty much a prototyping water jet. It's a tiny water jet for like an office. A small water jet. Oh, okay. It's twenty thousand dollars, and like for sixty thousand dollars, you get like a full size production machine. So it doesn't huh. make sense to me because it's like insanely slow. It, it's good like, for jewelry because literally it's double the cost. So it so kind of like makes financial sense. Water jet. Yeah, it's double the cost for a full, like a production one, except yeah. it takes ten times as long to cut out the same thing, if yeah. if not longer. That's a weird I thing to time. be. Like you think they would have like desktop EDMs, but not water jet. Well, that's it's it's a smaller pump, so it's mainly made for prototyping. Yeah. And then like the hobbyist, and then like the jeweling the jeweler industry is great because like they're using like sheet copper. But like yeah. I send them a like they'll quote it out and like for a three a five thirty seconds or three sixteenths folder blade, it was like twenty minutes. And like Jesus. a water a, a normal water jet would knock that out in under like a minute. 
So it just didn't make sense. I was like, well, I have the space in my shop. Interesting. It's the size of a small chest freezer, basically. And, you know, it runs just like all the other ones and runs off a CAD program and just set it to run and off you go. But for what we're doing, we're cutting meteorite strips. Oh, wow. Yeah, for him, it's a great machine. I was watching him do it. I was looking at that machine, and like right the day after, I was uh, like, him, he put on Instagram that he got one. I was like, oh shit. What's it like uh, working with Meteorite? Not fun. Not fun. It's hard. It's iron and silica. Yeah. Uh, it has a lot of natural cracks in it, and they sell it by the gram. It's expensive. I've heard yeah. that it, uh, it'll like awesome. rust immediately when you machine it. Not really, but if the, if you have one that's uh, very heavy, high in iron, it'll rust really fast. Yeah. They're 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 all different compositions. The, the cheaper it's just stuff like, like a we, slurry, right? Like you never know what it is. Yeah, now the problem is like I've had stuff where there was like hidden stones inside of it, and that's a problem. Space stones. Yeah, it's right. Space rock, but like there'll literally be like granite inside of it, and like if you hit that with your bandsaw, that's it. Bandsaw's fucked. Yeah. Like, I have this piece of so, right on the exterior. There's a little slab of granite on it, and I can tell that that's not metal. That's granite, so, like, I have to bandsaw around it. And I told the guy that when I was trying to buy it. I was like, look, I can't cut this part off. There's a giant slab of granite. And he did give me a discount when I bought it. I'm like, there's, well, I can't do anything with this granite slab inside this meteorite. Hmm. So, meteorite cutting. What else do you cut on that on that uh, office jet, water jet you got? Damasteel, Damascus that we make. Um, you can cut just about anything on it. Oh, so he uses. I mean, you you guys are using like all modern materials that the knife industry uses in your in jewelry making. Yes, that's pretty neat. That uh, sounds uh, like a, a job with awesome benefits right there. Yeah, I checked out that Chris Booth guy. He, he was doing his lot of different jewelry stuff using like jewelers grade mokume gold, and then uh, yeah, they, we we make all that too, like palladium five hundred and yellow gold. I, I got to talk to him about that. I need some jewelers grade mokume for something. I got to talk to him about making me a billet. It's not cheap, but yeah. I, I I know I'm, I'm I'm familiar. And the person that the knife was for, I told him I'm like this is not a it's like it's gonna cost more than standard gold and silver and stuff. But uh, it's just something you don't see used in the knife industry. And I wanted to use like jewelers grade mokume for like seven years before I even made knives. So I was like, no one ever does it like that. So are you guys forging on demand? Like, is this stuff commercially available, or you, you just make it for use in, in your shop? Um, we do sell it to some comp- other companies that make jewelry. Oh, okay. um, but the advantage of the stainless Damascus is it won't ever rust, but it's non-hardenable. So you could use it for bolsters, guards, um, rings, you know, anything that you don't have to worry about hardening um, in the knife world make thumb studs out of it thumb discs pretty much anything you want except blades how long have you been working with chris um since august oh so not that long at all okay not that long i've I've known him for a while he's always been interested in my knives and you know we cross paths every once in a while so he's a, a really good boss he's really good to work for He's really flexible, you know. He'll say, "Hey, what days do you want to come in next week?" And I say, "Oh, um, I got a show coming up. I'm really busy." He's like, "All right, just come in the week after." You know, that's pretty legit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, since they don't let me ask you this question earlier, I'm on your site and there's the spark bucket setup. Are you still using the same setup? I am not. The uh, it worked well for a little while, but 
eventually in the PVC tube, you get grit and grinding dust and stuff collecting, and then you get one spark and it catches on fire, and the whole tube catches on fire and starts to melt. Okay, so, so what are you using now? Because I'm trying to figure this great. setup right out in my shop right now that I was going to use PVC. I have five-gallon buckets under each of the grinders now, and over my main grinder that I use, I have a range hood that is vented directly outside. So any fine particle dust gets sucked up through the range hood and sent outside. It's also got LED lights built into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I have a, I have one of those air filters right over my grinder, and the five gallon bucket under. But I want to set up backs under my grinders. I was thinking you using the setup you have, except making the the making it higher so that the PVC pipe is only like six inches long instead of like two feet long. If I were doing it again, I would use dryer vent pipe, which is stainless the, steel. Yeah, and I don't know how to use that. I, I saw that at Home Depot. I'll try to come up with ideas, but I don't know how that stuff really works. It, it works well, and they also sell one that's flexible, so you can bend it around if you don't want to just use straight pipe right into the bucket. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you keep uh, an inch of water in the bucket, the tube has to go down and sit about an inch above the water, and any heavy stuff goes right down into the water, and the vacuum sucks out anything, fine particles that are light. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've been trying to set up, make my my uh, setup a little cleaner. Uh, you know, if you wore a respirator more often, <laughs> you wouldn't have to wear it all. I don't yeah. know. I, it's a problem. Yeah. Like the only time I wear the respirator is when I'm actually sitting and grinding a bunch. So I don't mind wearing the respirator. I just don't like putting it on for like quick touch-ups. And I do quick touch-ups all day, uh, like shortening some screws. It's gonna like, come back to haunt you. Yeah, exactly. I'm young. I got a lot of the time of this. So the, the steel ain't bad, but like uh, titanium, people uh, underestimate it. Like I know guys are soft. Only, they'll bounce right back. Yeah, guys yeah, only yeah. know. I mean, guys only usually wear respirators that I know, like on G10 composites. But like titanium is worse because it's a lot of vanadium, heavy metal poisoning. Then some of these stainless steels have a lot of vanadium in them too. That's right. You know, I go down to my shop. I put it on, and I'm used to wearing it all the time. That and some hearing protection, and all day long I'm used to wearing it. So yeah, eventually I, you get used to it. I need I need to get on the hearing protection part because I when I'm wearing my main office desk, the, the CNC is like 12 feet to the right, and I'm getting like early onset tinnitus in my right ear. I gotta get that. I think so. So I gotta start taking care of uh, PPE just in get, the shop. Just get a those shooting muffs. Just get like a, a nice pair of uh, over ear muffs. You'll be fine. You don't yeah. have to put in earplugs. Yeah, that's but I wear, I wear headphones muff. all day, so like, I don't know how to, how to, how to figure that out. Yeah, that's sure. worse, because then you're blasting music in your ear, and there's ambient well, sound coming in. It's not even that. It's only the right ear, because the right ear is facing the 6,000 RPM like wine of the CNC, and that's definitely what's been killing my right ear. You could get uh, earmuffs that have Bluetooth built into them, and they're, you can yeah. listen to music that way. I thought about that. I, I saw those at Home Depot. Or you could just like tape noise, the earphones to the inside one. of the earmuffs. Yeah. If you drill holes inside of your Look, ears I have, and then I have the a buds big inside ass there, head, you okay? I'm, I'm limited to the space. Right. I'm sure technology has a way. <laughs> make it make it up, Nick. Make yeah, it work. I'm Stop going I'm tr- deaf. I'm trying to make my shop safer. I got air I got air filters around the shop, but I need like I, I got started snow cars. I've never seen anything like that. 
What are you in the yeah, grinding room? It doesn't yeah, have to be in the base. As long shop. as you breathe through the cigar, it should be fine. Yeah. Oh, that's you exactly. Filter yeah. the, air. the titanium. I, the, I, the cigar stays the in my mouth all day, unlit, and it filters through all the tobacco. And at the end of the day, I light the cigar, <laughs> and then I smoke it all through as resin. I got you. No, I got you. You know, honestly, if you're, if you're literally fire. smoking the cigar while grinding, you should be be fine, yeah. technically, right? You should be good. Technically, technically, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, a filter. It is. Otherwise, you're going to like... Filter it out, no problem. Like, real good. It's you real may good. possibly be smoking the titanium, but... Yeah, which has happened, because if I'm smoking the cigar in my grinding room and I set it down on the side while I grind... And like you smoking the cigar, I could tell at the ash, I see little snap, crackle, and pops of the titanium dust. <laughs> Which, that, that is a thing. It's a, it's a cigar and a sparkler. Yeah, and then when I do that, I, like, I start getting nervous. I'm like, oh, is this a good it's idea? weird. The air is on fire. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and I'll put it right back next to the grinder and keep grinding the handles. Nick, do you have a door between your grinding room and the rest of the shop? Uh, right now I have a shower curtain. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a door and I took it down because I literally a shower curtain. It's literally a shower curtain. <laughs> well, no, I it was the reason I took down the door because I had to get a big piece of equipment in the shot into that room and I took oh. it out. So now I was just testing out the curtain thing, but I'm gonna put in. I already ordered it actually. I should install it. You, you know when you go to like a warehouse and they have those like thick plastic strips that between. overlap. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I'm like, putting there. Like a fan cooler door. Yeah, I don't want to put a door in there because, like, my dad's going to start working on me, so I don't want it to be directly blocked between areas. Yeah. Uh, like, a, like, like flats in a cooler. Yeah, I just made the mistake when I was building that grinding room. I should have listened to my dad when you were building it. I should have made a strip of glass along one of the walls so I could see the rest of the shop. Yeah. Uh, that's true. But when I, I, the hosp catches on fire, you can run out there and do something about it. Well, that's it. the thing. Because I have to keep peeking my head out the door if the hoss is running to check just uh, just to see that light on the hoss if the coat if the program is done if there's an alarm if the machine crashed. So okay. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put that like that that warehouse curtain or whatever it's called. We were just talking about knocking out walls, man. Make space in there. Customize that shit. I have space. I got like a thousand square feet that I don't use. I got a fucking bedroom and a living room and a kitchen in there. It'd be nice if you had a spare bedroom, though. I gotta be honest, you know. I have, a tent. Not I, have, bad, I, but... I have a tent whenever you're over. Uh, I'll yeah, have a lot, a lot less room once I uh, move all my equipment in. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's whenever you fucking decide where you're moving. I, I have a 700 square feet you can have. Just get your ass to New York. 700 square feet. Uh, yeah, that's a big-ass shop. <laughs> I think Elijah would spend too much time in the city looking at Rolexes. Uh, Rolexes and other things. <laughs> yes. Things, things and stuff. So, Chuck, tell us about this Marlin. Uh... <laughs> oh, boy. Nice transition. Really nice play. transition. Yeah. Yeah, let's 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 go back to um, we were talking about your website and I remember this yeah, I'm, knife I'm in particular because I, I saw this right knife now. like a few years ago and that was that was the inspiration to re to re hit you up after a bit. Uh, but t tell me tell me the story behind the behind the Marlin. So it, well, it's a it's a Marlin when it's closed, and the fin is the rocker release, and when it's open, it's a swordfish. And after I built it, I made it, I took a picture frame, I mounted a couple of wooden pegs so it looked like it was a mounted fish, and I tied a little fishing fly and mounted it on the bottom so it looked like that was the fly that caught the fish. And I sold the whole thing at Blade Show in like 2004. 
Okay, and where do I find this on the website? I want to look at this thing. Go to, go to autos, uh, or should, should show up. See, I was actually I was just talking to Elijah about this, but I think oh, that there should it. be more concept uh, art knife, not art knife, but like pieces of art that incorporate uh, interesting knives like that. Because I, uh, I think the Marlin mm-hmm. is such a cool idea. Like it's well, obviously it's a little hokey, but it's so much fun. Like it's just like whatever. Like it's a cool build for a switchblade. And um, and the fact that it's a swordfish when it's open is is just great. Yeah, so oh, any... go ahead. Then. Yeah, I got uh, so, so if anyone wants to see what we're talking about, because you should look this up, um, go on Chuck. Uh, get, get, can you say your last name? I can't say Gidritis. it. Get Get and then go to folder folders and automatic knives, and you'll see it. You should definitely check it out. It's a it's a pretty unique build. Yeah, it's 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 that's really cool. I mean, that's like another sign that you just like. Just don't give a fuck. Like whatever. Just just build what's cool. You know, build well, build what's cool. You know, want a friend of mine, uh, Stephen Ozluski, who started making folders in like 2001, 2002, was originally a jeweler, and he was building. He would build models for the jewelry company, like compacts or or anything that was going to be mass produced. Uh, figures for Disney, things like that. So he started making knives, and he started making figural knives, and that kind of inspired me to do one, where he would carve mermaids what? into the the whole knife would look like That's a mermaid, crazy. and there was a switchblade, and the release would be in the upper arm of the mermaid. Hmm. Um, huh. He did a king and queen set, um, just incredible carving skills, and that kind of inspired really me. Neat. So. Uh, I have Jeremiah and I have talked about this. Uh, I have a design drawn up to do another automatic similar to the Marlin, but it's a shark. So I'm oh, yeah, I just love, right. I love your description yeah, right. of it on the website. It just says, "When the knife is closed, it's a Marlin. When the knife is open, it's a swordfish." <laughs> That's great. It's direct. <laughs> yeah. It's all no, you need I, to yeah, know. we were we were talking about that. I'm down. I think that'd be very cool to do a do a shark one. See, there should be a photo of it closed, but uh. Oh, I, I, I see. It doesn't have to be. You got to use your imagination, Nick. Yeah. So where I, I did where did that end there. up, Chuck? Where is that knife? Yeah, I have no idea. That? Collector bought it, and it disappeared. It disappeared. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. he's listening. That's and just... if you are, sir, uh, please contact us. <laughs> yeah, put that up on. I yeah, mean, like, you know, technology club. Social media has brought us so many good and bad things in the industry, but you know, I, I really and not it's not a plug, but I really did get back into the YouTube being in Vegas full time and just recording every knife that comes to the door and putting it up on YouTube makes me feel better that you know these these Are things will have a home again? forever. Yeah, yeah. Like they'll nice. forever have a home on the internet. Like something like this is so cool and we didn't have YouTube then, but like again, you might never see this knife again, which is very unfortunate. If it had a thirty second video on YouTube, it would last forever, you know? Um but a lot of those private collectors, you know, they don't have uh, social media. They aren't interested in that. And just really cool pieces like that just go away. Um, you know, yeah. or, or worse, they get taken. A lot of the art knives that I, that I built, uh, you know, if you look around, there aren't any available on any dealer's websites. It's only the newer stuff that I've built within the last five years or less. So I don't know if there's a trend to go back to making art knives. or, or I think what? there might be, honestly. So, well, at least, if not art knives specifically, I mean, certainly something out of the standard norm we have now. I mean, something towards the more, I, you know, and I use that word gently, but not 
fanciful, but maybe, you know, I don't know, like more more interesting than our standard frame locks we have now. I mean, certainly, obviously, you can see that in in your designs, Elijah, and uh, and other you know other blade cutouts. I hope to see stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of those like quote unquote artsy type designs of mine, like that's just I can't stop. You know, I just I I can't decide when it's done, so it just keeps going until it's. Good. Okay, so I'm looking. I'm on your site right now, and I'm looking at your art knife section. You have the stepped art deco dagger. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the turtle shell scale and the bronze. Now, you how'd you grind that? You didn't grind that blade. I'm assuming you file worked the blade. Uh, let me pull it up. It's yes. A, it's a stepped Art thing. Deco dagger. It's on the art knife section. That looks file worked for sure. Yeah, it, there's no way to grind that. Oh, there it is. Uh, I've actually the, done it. The one with the tortoise shell, I milled it. Oh wow! Cleaned it up with files. Okay, because I could tell the backspace because that was definitely milled, or I guess back back in that day you guys called it a backstrap because it went the yeah. entire length. Yeah, or the back bar. And most that's of my knives back then did go the entire length. Yeah, that's what because I like, I'll talk to Joe Part do a lot, and he'll be like he'll he'll uh, he'll call it all backstrap. He said, "Oh, it should go the entire way." Da da da, this and that. But like, it limits you on designing, like. I, only one of my designs could go the entire way, uh, and still flipper. So it can only really go to the rotation of the flipper tab. Besides yeah. that, it, it limits you a lot. So if if you're still on that art knife page, if you click on yeah. that secret window folder, the hell do you that... see that? Secret window. Oh, the knife is actually called the secret window. Secret window. Secret oh, page. Gotcha. that is the, the perfect example of the kind of art knives that I used to make back in the day. Like the blade is Daryl Meyer. Turkish twist that I forged to shape. Uh, that backspacer tri- is insane. Yeah, yeah. that's really Pearl cool. inlays. That's, and nice. all that's some really good. You don't up. see black lip like that anymore. That's a really good black lip. Wow. And there's black lip under all the bolsters. And there's no bolster screws showing. Just there's about 40 colors in that black lip. That's oh, crazy. shoot, you're right. I didn't even notice that. There's no hardware in the bolster. Yeah, and a you know, gold oh, wow. thumb stud oh, nice. set with a garnet or a ruby. File work, the screw heads, and they're, those are heat colored. Uh-huh. You know, well, now, did you engrave the, the Day, Day of the Dead knife? No, a friend of mine from Rhode Island did that. It was like the second or third knife he had ever engraved. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was gold. I was like, oh, I didn't know you did that. And I was like, oh, that's bronze. It's bronze. <laughs> I was like, holy oh, shit. <laughs> That's basically a what do you call it a puffin or that's a, a puffin? Pelican? That's a puffin, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, well, this one was made in 2012. Well, at the end of 2012. Yeah. So right before we all were supposed to die. Is that why he <laughs> made that cool. knife? <laughs> no. Oh, 2012. Yeah. Hey, you never really see Chad Nichols mosaic stuff. He makes it, but I've never no. I don't see anyone ever buy it and make it on a knife. It's because it's a high carbon and everybody wants yeah. stainless because it's yeah. It's free. I think Mark mentioned some guy in Israel. Possibly that makes Damascus. That's like insane. It's like some wicked stuff. Are you huh. familiar with with anybody like that, Chuck? Does that ring a bell? No, not at the moment. I think you said Israel. Yeah. It might be tough to get it too. Oh yeah, very. Now, Chuck, hmm. would you consider the um, what do you call it? The subhill fighter, the the ballet song. Would you consider that an art knife, even though it was a ballet song? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I was about to say, I consider, I know which one you're talking about, I, I consider that an art knife. Because that's not like a functional valley, and, and then the way it was, I, I consider that an art knife, but not like a full art knife. Well, the one that I saw wasn't as full an art knife, like, because the, the materials weren't there and stuff like that. But the type of work he put into that knife, I'd still consider it art knife. All right, story, let's hear it. Where, where, what, are we, what are we talking about for the people who have no idea? I can't find a photo here. So uh, I, Chuck, I had, how'd you go I, build that? I had a customer send me a picture of a loveless subhill big bear fighter, and he said, I want you to make a ballet song inspired by that. Said, okay, I appreciate the challenge. So the blade started off as 516 thick D2, three inches wide, because the lugged guard is integral to the blade, so I needed to have a piece wide enough. And then I milled down um, an eighth inch on either side so that it looked like an actual guard on a fixed blade. Hmm. And then... The handles were 416 stainless with stag in, uh, inlays, and it was engraved on all the bolsters on the handles, and it was double-edged. And the blade was the blade was six or six and a half inches long, ground on a five-inch wheel, and then all uh, hand hand sanded, hand rubbed. Mm-hmm. And it went to a collector in Canada. And I mailed it to him in, in three in pieces, and it was confiscated by customs. Oh, wait, oh. so that knife, you, but I saw one in per. Oh no, 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 my Jeremiah showed me photos. Was that the only one you ever made? That's the only sub hilt I've made. I'm approaching my 200th ballet song, and I thought about doing another one that's a little bit smaller. Uh, you should. I feel like one like, like it was so unique. It should be something like that should be out there. Like on I your even, website. Uh, where are, are the ballets at? I can't find them. He doesn't. He doesn't have them. I'll try to oh, okay, yeah. You know why I don't have them on my website? Because I have Too a, many? I, have a guess. I have a PayPal logo on my website where you used to be able to buy yeah. through PayPal, and oh, they are yeah. not ballet song friendly. And they said um, you have to take those off of your website if you're going to use our services. Wow, that's what dealers are for, right, Jer? There you go. Yeah, I tried, dude. Okay, now well, so, we're in the con- when we're talking about ballast knives, before I forget, yeah. sorry, Jeremiah. Uh, when I first found your work like five, six years ago, I, what I thought was unique, what is the story behind the Swiss Army ballast song? If, I don't know if Jeremiah <laughs> even knows what that is. I don't know about no, that. I, I know that one. I know that one. Okay, g- Google the Chuck, get, get Chuck G, a, Swiss Army ballast song. That's another great ballet song story, dude. So I had a uh, one of those Swiss cards. That uh-huh. comes with the toothpick and the tweezers and the fingernail file and all that stuff. And I like, used to love those when I was younger. And I'm like, I'm going to build a Swiss Army Ballet song. Nice. And I just because I wanted to do it, I bought the Red G10. I designed a blade that had a bottle opener built into it. And then I milled the pockets underneath the Red G10 so that way the implements from the Swiss card would fit into it. And then you put the ruler on the back. So if There's you go on Blade HQ, you'll find it. But if I you go on Blade, yeah, awesome. Blade HQ's country of origin says Switzerland. <laughs> really? Yeah, like, look, it says model Swift, country of origin, Switzerland. And then that's he, like, great. copyrighted the, the Swiss Army Knives logo with a G. <laughs> that's yeah, I right. It. I put a G in it for my last name. And that is awesome. Yeah, this, I saw this, like, years ago. That's, like, the first thing I ever saw from you. And I, I just caused it, oh, it's awesome. But I, and then when I when I met you a few years ago, actually, then 
was scrolling through your stuff again. I found it again. I was oh shit, he made that. But I, I every time I see you in person, I always forget to ask you about it. <laughs> so I'm like this, this, like you use the same knives. You pretty much just copyrighted the Swiss Army the Swiss Army knife system and made a vowel song with the bottle opener, the ruler on the back. It was a pen. Uh, the tools. That's nice. Yeah. And the hardest part was making so the tools would stay in it while you flipped it. Oh wow! I can't imagine. Because otherwise they're gonna want to go sailing out and you'll lose them forever so i put detent Tension. balls in so they would snap into place uh-huh now are is the ruler accurate yep okay yeah now, i sat there and used another ruler and i sat there with by hand with a little hacksaw and cut in the uh increments and then uh filled them in with white paint mm-hmm. yeah it's another life you guys should look up uh um, Latest who has it on their site. It's all, all out of stock, but just for photos, just look up Swiss Army Battle Song Chuck G. You'll find it. Gedritis. I can't say it. I get tongue tied. Uh, uh, and you'll so see it. it. It's pretty uh, neat knife. I used to make a lot of art ballet songs that were just over the top, you know, whatever I wanted to build. And the trend right now is everybody's making them that are they're very flippable. But they also all look the same. So I, I wonder, think I'm going to start making more Art Valley songs again. There you go. Yeah, man. I wonder I'm how how angry Victorinox would be if you did like a production run of these. Uh, like a limited production run. I don't know. Let's I find mean, out. It's not something that they really make. You know, they don't make Valley yeah. songs. And it's, if he made them all handmade custom, they wouldn't bother him unless he got yeah, it produced. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I think it's yeah, a big red idea. Like like six of them would. Yeah, I, I bet that wouldn't be a problem. Now, um, how okay. old are your kids? I saw they started working at the shop. That just latest you site reminded me because they are they making the beads. They are so. But my kids want a Nintendo Switch, and I said, uh-huh. well, if you want one, you're gonna have to earn the money mm-hmm. for it. So I said, well, I had my daughter help me make some beads in the past. So I said, all right, let's make some beads. So I take all my scrap handle material and my daughter laid out all the pieces that were one by one square. My son cut them out on the bandsaw. I glued them all together. My son drilled holes in all of them. And I put them on a dowel in my cordless drill and turned them all on my grinder. And so they're for sale and the money goes to my kids for their Nintendo Switch. Oh yeah, you still have some for sale, so you can plug that. That's pretty cool. If anybody wants a, be- a custom bead, bead made by father and son and daughter, go to, uh, check out Chuck's Instagram. Yeah, I, I tried to get them into the shop. I'm like, look, I have all this equipment. I know how to build all kinds of stuff. Let's build stuff. I tried to get my son to build slingshots and things like that with me, and he has no interest whatsoever. But he thought it was kind of cool using the bandsaw and the drill press to make stuff. And I said, well, come down, I mean, that's you want. like a, that's like grow into a two thing. Like as soon as they're oh, yeah. like, teen, one day he's going to get, yeah, he'll be like, oh man, that is so cool. Like that is legit. I'm like, come make knives, come make, you know, throwing stars, whatever you want to make. <laughs> I'll help them. There we go. Get, yeah, get some I'm shurikens a... going. Yeah. Shurikens. I'm in the opposite boat with my father right now. He's 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 in the shop now. If he makes stuff, it's uh, 
so I could I could see where your kids are standing at where they don't want to go work with their father because <laughs> I've been by me and my dad are just butting heads the entire time. Well, my daughter and I we used to design knives because she she's an artist she likes to draw and paint and so uh, I had her design some ballet song handles for me. And Josh actually bought the ballet song from me at Blade Show a few years ago, and it was a Tonto design ballet song, but the handles had flowers. On all of them. Oh, I'd, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, I used the carbide burr to cut the petals, and I set a detent ball in the center of it, and then I anodized the handles pink and polished off all the flats so only the cutouts were colored, and they looked like little pink lotus flowers all the way down the handles. That's super neat. Huh. I think we still got pictures of that. I mean, in the catalog somewhere. Yeah, do more, do more dress ballets. Those are cool, man. Like that's nobody is doing like like far out stuff like that. And and I think it's important to note that. Um, so <clears throat> there's an interesting thing about your ballets that they're all they're all numbered. I mean that's okay. That's not the interesting thing, <clears throat> but they're all uh, they're all one offs, right? They're all totally you know within reason different. Correct. They're all different. When I first started making them, I had collectors who collected certain numbers. Like there was one guy who only collected number eights. Yeah, and I'd from, imagine 007, 13. Yeah, Dudley Dawkins collected 007s, so he got number seven. And so I just started numbering all of them and up, up to, I think, 196. Mm, and they're all different. Early on, they were just made with barrel pivots. And then I had collectors say, can you put bushings in these? And I had to figure out how to put bushings in them and now all of them have bronze bushings and i've started using some stainless bushings so bushings and washers yes no bearings no bearings you know you don't like bearings or you don't feel like the they flip well i feel like they're too fast that you don't get the friction that you need in a ballet song because for certain tricks you don't want them to be too fast and i feel like the bearings make them too fast. Uh, you, they don't get enough. What's the word I want to use? Um, resistance. That's exactly the word. They don't have enough resistance. I can see that. I definitely. It's it's. There's a different sound to bearings too. Um, like there's a different sort of clacking that happens uh, as opposed to like a nice uh, bushing and, and washer setup. And the also amount whatever, of whatever bearings can the, go to hell. The amount of flipping that you these guys are doing in their valleys, you know, they'll probably sit there for a couple of hours at a time. That if you don't put a hardened washer in, you're gonna eat away and make a bearing race in your titanium handles, and then your tolerances are gonna be off. Yeah, I had to redesign my valley to, to accept the washers because when I was making, them, I was like, yeah, it should be fine. I was like, nah, I'm pretty sure these are gonna need steel washers. So I have to kind of redo some moving around so I can fit them in there. Yeah, and depending on how thick you want to make the handles, you don't necessarily have the room for the pockets. Yeah, so I pocketed the blades to get that all in there. Yeah, I don't want to have to do that. I'm yeah. thinking that this uh, this bell song, asymmetric bell song design I got, is going to be flippable, I think. The, yeah, the detractus? Yeah, for the most part, uh, I got the prototype in uh, last night, actually. So it seems like it's gonna work. So I'm pretty excited about that. 
I, I could see that surprising a lot of people in its flippability. So yeah, even the, though... The handle's straight yeah, enough. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it's not even the straight... It's that, like, I think the shoulders near the pivots might work well for, like, low-style uh, finger twirls and chaplains. Like, I think that might actually facilitate an entirely different style of trick that I, that I hadn't really thought of while looking at it in the past. Mm -hmm. You spoke Chinese. I have no idea what that is. I know. I, I know what you Copy meant. That. You're good. <laughs> Chaplins. Yeah. Charlie style. Uh, Charlie style. So, so Chuck. So over the years, you've consistently made ballet songs. When was, I mean, when when you started, when you marked the first one, zero zero one, when or one, when was that? Was that uh, in two thousand when you said you first made the one, or like you you worked on it some prototypes or what? Uh, no, back then I didn't prototype anything. I would, you know, draw it up on paper and make a working paper template and then just transfer it to steel and like, I'm going to build, I'm going to build this. I mean, that's kind of what I do now. I still draw everything out on paper, old school, and I have boxes and boxes of templates. And sometimes I mix and match blades, but back then I said, I'm going to build a ballet song. I have an idea of how it works. I didn't really know how to press fit pins into the blade. So I would have to taper them and then peen them a little bit to get them to stay in. And it was a whole lot of learning involved to get to the point that where seems I like now. so much more work than just mm. pressing it in with arbor press. Yeah, I didn't know that, you know, how to do that back then. You know? How do you mm. press fit in a stop pin at a belly? Just ream, ream it undersized and use the rubber press. But it's the same thing like when you were at my shop and you're like, oh, because uh, when like the heat, treat, the heat treating method I was using when I was quenching three to four blades at a time, Elijah, you were like, oh, that just makes sense. I'm like, yeah, but I, you're like, you, I guarantee that if you didn't see me do it, you probably wouldn't have done it that way. It makes sense yeah. when you see someone do it, but until someone shows you, it's just that you're not yeah, going to realize pulling it. Pulling it out of thin air is yeah, different. Yeah, I know you press for them in, but like, um, how do you gauge the depth do you have like a, a a a like a jig to make it the same uh on each side uh, i use a standard length stop pin yeah. so it's uh three eighths of an inch and if you're using an eighth inch blade stock and then it sticks out an eighth inch on either side okay. so you can just use a piece of scrap eighth inch yeah. g10 as a stop so that when you're pressing them in they're the same length oh, on both sides that's simple enough yeah. So the the tang pins versus zen pin um, on a ballet. I mean, what do you? What was the? What number was your first zen pin? Because I mean, I would I would imagine you basically built tang pins until we started seeing uh, the zen pin. I I've done a few of the, the zen pins. Um, I like the tang pin better though. I think that it's a larger diameter pin. I think that the sound it makes when it's flipping is better. And it's easier to control the distance or the spacing between the handles. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then flex for the uh, for the latch when it closes. Um. Or do you feel like it's it's either way? It just it crunches it and that's fine. It, I think it's fine either way, but I just prefer the the tang pins. There, there's something traditional and aesthetic about seeing the tang pins. I mean, you know, to each his own, but. That's that's kind of how they started. So I, I appreciate tank pins. Well, I think for people who are serious flippers, when you have Zen pins, you have that little tab that sticks out on the the tang of the blade, and right. that can get in the way. Whereas if it's a tank pin, that's 
usually polished and rounded and it's smooth and it's not going to get caught on your fingers or you know or if you have rings on it's not going to get caught on your rings it just i find that it sticks out too much and sometimes it takes away the proportions of the the knife when it's in the closed position it makes the the whole thing look longer than it really is mm. all right so what what's your um what's what's your favorite Bally over the years, like would it would it be the the subhill or would it be something that we haven't even seen? Uh, it's probably something that you haven't seen. I mean, I've done a, oh, a lot of them. Um, they're all so different. Um, I don't know. It's hard to to choose one. There is one on Blade HQ's website that's got it's a Yakuza Bally song. It's got a Damascus blade, titanium handles, and carbon fiber inserts. And I think actually the inserts are lightning strike carbon fiber. Oh, mm, can't find it. So I was actually on uh, their website, Yakuza. Yeah, Yakuza only shows up for your fixed blade and your folder is currently on their site. Let me see if I can find it. In the Mayor Co. Mm. I don't want these Yakuza's look familiar. I feel like I saw it in Kentucky, possibly. So if you go to my um, personal page on Blade HQ, if you go under Custom Knives and go under my name, it's on the fourth page. It's the number 111 Valley Song. Hmm. So weird. My computer's not loading that website. I haven't done any ballet songs. With, did did uh, you guys uh, <laughs> ban it off the site? Child knock it. <laughs> I, I found. I just. I, I just wrote one 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 ballet song in, in the search and I found it. I see it. You dovetailed in the inlays. Yeah, and that that, that one's got Zen pins. Mm. Yeah, that's what I, I'm running. Zen pins. I always fucking forget which one's which. I'm, I'm, Zen pins are the ones that are in the handle. It's... Have you ever done one uh, pinless construction? That has to be something that's done channel, which actually, have you done channel ballot songs? I've done four channel ballet songs. They, you still have to have one tank pin in, um, the rear tank pin. Yeah. But I've done four of those in titanium, and they were not... It was a lot of planning, because once you mill the slot, you got gonna have some flex in the handle, so then you have to put an insert in, so you can drill the rest of your holes and not have them the handles flex on you while you're drilling holes. Mm-hmm. So, how much interaction with the Valley uh, Song maker community have you had over the years? Like, have you talked to a lot of other makers? I mean. In in and out of, I mean, you've certainly been doing it long enough to to cross paths with other people, or is it is it just kind of like as a knife maker, it's a knife thing and not necessarily a valley song thing? It's for yeah, it's more of a knife thing. It's not necessarily a valley song thing. I've never met Chris from Twenty Nine Knives. I've never I've you know talked with um, Valley Ballistic. Oh, Sean. I've talked with Sean only through Instagram. I've never talked to him on the phone. We've just texted back and forth. So it's one of those things where I'm, you know, 
I know of them, but I've never really talked to them. Right. Just part of that even more exclusive Cool Kids Club. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nick, in your episode, you talked about going to the New York show, and it was still in New York. No, I didn't. I said I didn't go to it when it was still in New York. Uh, I missed it by, from what I understand, uh, I missed it by like a year or two. My first year was 09. Okay. So, like, uh, yeah, I guess 09, I was 13 my first year. Does that make sense? 10 years? Yeah, 09. Um, I never experienced it in New York. Unfortunately, I live in New York. But I remember everyone told me it used to be in Times Square, if that was right. It was in Times Square at the, um, uh, right on... Times Square and Broadway. It wasn't the Marriott. It was... I know, that just seems weird to me. Yeah, I didn't know that. Apparently, yeah, Marsh said that in the uh, that other podcast. That was I... the first the first real main show I ever been, or first big show I ever been to. Uh, I used to go into New York City with my mom for for a weekend. We'd go to a Broadway show and we'd go to the Knife Show and I'd go and buy Mammoth Ivory and buy some materials and you know hold on to that material till I found the right knife for it to go on but starting to go to those shows i would meet guys like edmund davidson and Legend. rick fields who used to be an ivory dealer and a um used to do scrimshaw i'm only familiar uh, with rick flair no <laughs> different one Close. did you say rick fields rick fields fields okay and who else walter brand and uh, Frank Santafonte and um, old school dudes. Old school dudes. Warren Osborne and Joe Kios and all those guys. And I'd, I'd show them knives that I was working on, and you know they'd give me little tips and stuff. But uh, I've been doing this a long time. You know, I've been in the knife world for you know building knives for 25 years. And people, the biggest thing people uh, are surprised about when they meet me is they think I'm an old guy. <laughs> just because I've been making knives for so long, I'm I'm 43. Just for the record. Yeah. So. Huh. Just for record, time. not a maker. Yeah, right. Just the maker would do this. How, okay, so how many? That's the question. How many blade shows? Uh, this will uh, coming up will be my 18th blade show. That's wow, that's crazy. Crazy. That's well, that's extreme right there. Eight, 18 <laughs> with a table. 19. Because when I graduated from college, or when I was about to graduate, I flew down for the for my first blade show in 2000, and Fucking just showed up. I got a uh, VIP pass, and back then they would actually get you in for free. Huh? And you have twice as many as I did. I got eight. I, I went the last. My first year was that last year they had was was the smaller room. The following year they opened up another whole section. Yep, and I got it's gotten bigger ever since. The first year I went down, I had had dinner with Jerry Rados, who famous Damascus maker and a bunch of other yeah. makers, and um, they're like, "Hey, you should get a table here." And in two thousand and one, I got my first table. What was the What was the spread for the first blade show? What would you have? Like a little bit of everything, or did you just bring folders? I I used to bring a little bit of everything. I was like a schizophrenic knife maker. I'd have a, a lockback and a slip joint and some fixed blades and an auto and ballet songs and I would basically just cover all the bases and have anything that anybody could ask for. And I'd show up with 10 or 15 knives 
my first show I had was in row 24, all the way in the nosebleed section. And I learned real fast that, um, like the first five rows, people who brought cash would buy knives. And then from row five to 15, they would use their credit cards. And after that, they were broke. So if you were in the way back, you didn't really sell any knives. And nobody had lotteries back then. It wasn't a mm. thing. You didn't have to win the chance to buy somebody's knife. Yeah, that changed everything. Win the, yeah. Win the chance to give somebody else your money. Yay. I think, my, I think it was my, my second Blade show. I think it was like 2002 or 2003. My table was right behind Bob Blum. And wow. That was something else. Wow. People lined up at his table. And as soon as he got there, he'd put out a knife and somebody would just pick it up and not put it down. And they would just, he would do that with four or five knives that he had brought and everybody would just throw money at him and then he would just hang out the rest of the weekend. Huh. It's pretty awesome. That's yeah, pretty it was cool. Yeah, no, so now it's a little different. Now it doesn't matter what, or what spot you're in. You just post on Instagram, I'll be here. And people specifically make a list to go to the makers they want to see. Yeah. And then now everybody waits around to buy knives to see if they get pulled in a lottery. Right. And you yep. still, you still, I, I mean, two things. I saw you in Kentucky. A, dude, you still bring uh, like slip joints, ballet songs, lockbacks. I mean, you, you still, you still brought a, a fair selection to that show. <laughs> yeah, you still bring a spread. I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, like you're, you you're, used to be you're a still at it. <laughs> You're not like, oh, I just brought one type. Like, I saw you. You, you brought a whole bunch. I mean, you, you weren't afraid to just, like, cover the bases on that one. It's one of those things that if you have the type of knife that somebody's looking for, maybe they'll buy it from you. But if you only bring one style of knife and they're looking for something specific, and it also shows my skill level that I can build a little bit of everything. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, that's Skills are too. overrated. Uh... <laughs> Use the skill number 437. Uh, and you still collect. I mean, I, I, I see, you you know, you, you own knives. Like, a lot of knife makers give up and are like, I don't care. But, I mean, you, you, have, you, you have personal knives that aren't yours. Yeah. I mean, I still buy things that I think are, are things that I aspire to. Like, I just, I recently bought a Charles Marlowe Bamboo Ballet song. And just the, the fit and finish on it is incredible and you know it's something that you aspire to have your knives be like you know and guys that um i looked up to back then who were my influences you know i owned some of their knives sometimes i sell them you know to buy another knife but you know, i'm still a collector at heart you know yeah the collector so still, still in love with knives. i'm surprised so, uh, you're still into it Still love into knives, and I, I still carry one every day, no matter where I go. Right. I always what are you carrying today? You must, yeah, you must be carrying. Ask him. So yeah. for for the past couple of months, I was carrying a Benchmade 943-1, the carbon fiber Osborne with the clip point blade. Hmm. But I recently started carrying one of my own knives because people always ask, oh, you make knives? What do they look like? And instead of just showing them pictures on Instagram... So I made myself a Axis Lock Puffin. Oh. Because wait, the Axis Lock patent has... Um, wait, like Omega are, Springs and everything? Omega Springs and everything. Get the heck nice. out of here. And, and I that made this, been a pain in the ass. I made the springs out of titanium. 
What? What? Because huh. Benchmade makes them all out of stainless, and yeah, yeah, they have a tendency to break. So I made mine out of titanium wire. The company yes. that shall not be named. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of upset a couple of people. Oh, whatever. Just a just a bit. An access? That's interesting. Huh. Okay. Huh. I guess that's that's a pretty friendly carry uh, knife. Like it's not you can whip that out and it's not gonna like no one's gonna think you're gonna hold them up or nothing. Yeah, it's got marbled carbon fiber scales. Uh, you know, CPM one fifty four blade that I tumbled. Um, black Damascus pocket clip, and eventually somebody will really want it, and they'll probably buy it right out of my pocket, and then I'll have to make myself another one. Yeah, that's what happened. That's what happened with me, my original carry, and then I, I, someone wanted to buy it out of my pocket, and then I finally made my own carry as a knife that was a blem. So I was like, I'm not selling this. Essentially, I drilled something off. That I made it like four years ago, and it's so off center that like you, it's it doesn't rub on the side, but you can't put a paper, uh, you can't put a piece of paper between the blade and the frame. It, it, it's way off. <laughs> I still had offers on it, but I, I'm not letting that one out the shop. Someone's going to eventually resell it and be like, oh, it's a perfect knife, and no, it ain't. Yeah. Light centering. I need to make myself a perfect knife with, like, exotic materials for, like, as they say, the filthy casuals. When it's like, oh, what do you do? I make knives. Oh, okay, that's cool. Uh, can I buy one? I'm like, no, it's like a $1,000 knife. It's like, oh, nah, okay. never, never mind. I'm like, Well, the, the, the problem with doing that is that you build something with exotic materials and then you say it's either too fancy to carry or you say, I have so much time and money invested in this, I would rather have the money. Nah, well, right now I guess I can build work another two-inch frame lock. So a two-inch right. frame lock doesn't take that much exotics. Well, yeah. So I'm make it like pull. Oh, yeah, like a pod or something. Yeah, I want to make that pod frame lock do like a Zerka tie frame with a mother that pearl inlay. That is so inlay. broke, dude. That knife is tiny. <laughs> exactly. Zerka <laughs> tie frame, mother pearl inlay, and a sand pine frame. Full dress carry. Yeah, that can carry it and use it. We should take bets on how long it takes for Nick to lose it because it's so small. No, I carry the Black Star. Already lost. I carry the Black Star daily. And that that just goes in that little fifth pocket. I haven't lost it. I did did lose it when I first got it. You carry it daily? Like a month. Yeah. I sharpened it. Very touching, Nick. I've broken the tip on it. I'm flipping it right now. You just never know that I broke the tip on it because I've reground it. <laughs> Does anybody want to know what I'm carrying? What are you carrying? It's a great size. Any guesses? Uh, right now, I'm going to say... Uh, I've been carrying it for the past week. Oh, tough, the tough uh, Kaplan? Oh, no, wait. Yeah, did you get a Tough Knives? Tough Knives. No, it's a small Sabenza. Sorry, what? No one cares about that. You got yeah. about that. What the fuck? Jeremiah, 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 what are you carrying? <laughs> uh, right now, I'm carrying a Black Star, an Arrakis, uh, SOCOM Elite. Uh, that's everything. Okay, never mind. Brand loyalty. Dude, that's what's up. Well, I, yeah, kind of. I decided if I was going to be surrounded by knives all the time, I was really only going to c- collect the automatics that I really want or just ones that my friends make. Because, like, otherwise, I'll just buy everything. So. Yeah, that's the thing. Like I was saying, I'm surprised Chuck still collects because the moment I started making frame locks and then I started making them full time, so I was consistently making them, I stopped collecting because I'm like, this is boring because I could make it. And then it stopped collecting for about five years, and I just started collecting again because of Jeremiah, and now I have about five automatics. Damn, son. And that's I started collecting automatics, and and because uh, I haven't made those yet, I am about to. But until that happens, I'm gonna collect them. Watch, I'm, watch, I'm gonna start making them. 
And after a year, I'm going to get bored and just sell all the automatics I have and stop collecting again. Whatever. And then I'm going to start only collecting OTFs. I think and you're going to start making them and get frustrated with how difficult they are. Yeah. And then, yeah. I'll, and then I'll move on to collecting only OTFs, and eventually I'm going to try to want to make an OTF. Wait, is that, Chuck, is that the only one you haven't made? As far as an automatic, I haven't made it out the front. That's it. Yeah. Huh. But wait, you've made every other kind of knife, right? Uh, I haven't made a button lock folder, but. Okay. Uh, and I, for slip joints, I want to build a split back whittler where it's got two springs that taper down from. There's three blades. The two small blades each have their own independent spring, and those taper down to the spring for the main larger blade. Interesting. Okay, I'm about to Google that one. I'm unfamiliar. That sounds really neat, though. Yeah, I'm lost. I thought I thought it was me one spring for the big blade, and then one spring for the oh. two small blades that was pinned in the middle. No, it's two separate springs, and there's a tapered spacer in the middle um, hmm. to separate them for the two small blades. Neat. Bill Rupel used to have a table next to me at the blade show, and I would sit and look at his knives and pick his brain a little bit. So your next show is Blade Show, and what's what's your regular show circuit these days? I mean, we we've got to talk about the show thing. There's there's so many goddamn shows. Uh, not in a bad way, but there's a lot of them. Might be in a bad way, but as a, as a maker, what what shows are you hitting? What's your circuit this year? Um, I used to do nine shows a year before Man. I had kids. That's crazy. Yeah. That's All crazy if you're not even making stuff and just going to them. All over the country. And then, um, so yeah, this year I have Blade Show, um, which is coming up, in, according to Nick, in six months. Yeah, in six months. Perpetually six, six months. months. Six then months. I go to, and then every time it's, like, once two months, it's seven months away. Yeah, it keeps adding. I only acknowledge it once a week away. Then I go to the gathering, but that's just for fun. I don't display. I just go and hang out. It's actually a fun show because I can talk to makers and my material, and it's in Vegas. And then uh, I do the New Jersey, the New York Custom Knife Show, which is in New Jersey. And then the uh, Kentucky Custom Knife Show at the beginning of December. And that's usually my last show for the year. So about three shows a year now. All right. That's a, that, I feel like those are, the, those are the most popular standbys. I mean, we've got a lot of shows these days, but those are the, those are the ones that have been there and are probably continuing to be there. Yeah. I mean, I would do more, but there are just so many shows, and you can only build so many knives. You know, I don't like going to a show with three knives because it's not necessarily cost-effective. And I don't know what you're talking about. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how much you sell those knives for. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. Well, that was, I only did that in Kentucky, and Kentucky's a cheap show. So, Well, like in New Jersey, Kirby Lambert's next to me. He brings two knives comes all the way from canada i think he i think he just does that come to new york because the new york show is very expensive the table is like 700 dollars. they make you stay at that hotel which is about 200 a night and they're just eating in new york costs more so like i think he just breaks even i think he does that as a vacation he does he goes and he really enjoys the food he goes to nobu for mm -hmm. sushi oh, so he's he not even breaking even he, he's he's losing money <laughs> he's just, <laughs> just getting food just getting chow That's yeah I, I've, I've been to know <laughs> it's about a, for some people, 150 it's to 200 dollars a person yeah new york's not that bad we swear no 
Nah. I, I live here. It costs a lot. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Shit. I totally forgot about that. Okay. You don't say. You don't you say. say. Um, let's see. So next show's Blade Show. So it's a little calm till that. We have about six months to get ready. Um, downtime. Then what's after that? We got a... Uh, well, what's first? Paris, Paris or... Oh, the next one's Vegas. No, Vegas. the next one's the... Uh, the uh, Portland. Uh, the oh, it's it's North, Northwest uh, Handbuilt. Hand no one knows what that is. That's in July. I think, a, I think a lot of people don't know what that is. I think more people will know what it is. And you have to be invited as a maker. You can't just ask to, to get a table. Oh, it's the, the TKI of the Pacific Northwest. The PNWTKI. Pacific Maybe Northwest. one more acronym there? Yeah. Okay, well, after that, it's Vegas, and that's like 10 months away. Yeah. And I, I mean, was Chuck, in, uh, you do show deliveries for that, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I was invited to go to the uh, FIAC show in Paris. Oh. Oh, the Fix. Yes. Oh, the Fix, yeah. That uh, is awesome. Oh, I don't know. If, I thought you were mispronouncing CCAC. So what, what is that one? Well, there's two. Yeah, it's like it's way more art. Thing. It's like way yeah. more art knife uh, influenced that... Uh, Grace actually goes there. Yes. What is that? Grace oh, Warner. really? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch. It's pretty much just, like, primarily art knives. It's uh, very fancy. It's about the third week of September. Yeah. Mm. It's, yeah, um, I think only one day, or maybe two days. It's right after CCAC. Mm-hmm. Ever since we had dinner with Grace Horn and them that time, I've been following Grace Horn on Instagram. She makes some insane scissors. Like the oh, recent yeah. scissors she's making oh, right yeah, now. It's insane, yeah. I keep following that build. Yeah, I've been following that There's build. There's a YouTube video of her um, with scissors from uh, the Feeks show, like a few oh, years ago. Right? Yeah. I gotta find that. They actually have a YouTube channel. Oh, wow. All right. Okay. See, that's that's great because all the, you know, any bladed object, scissors or knives, it just, it just disappears. You know, it, it won't get remembered. I, I hate to plug YouTube like that, but. It's better to have it immortalized in video than to lost for forever, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure people are, you know, watching the YouTube's anyway. So. Oh yeah. Right, so Chuck, what's uh, what's something you'd like to build? Like, what's your next like goal to build, or just some cool thing you want to try? Um, or you've really um, tried most of it. You've been I, around for a long time. I drew up a swing guard automatic. Hell yeah. Nice. Because I've done some manual swing guards. Um, but I've never done a swing guard automatic, so to now, add even more moving parts. Yeah, just make it more complicated, why don't you? Now, for the guys that are more into the modern collecting or new, can you explain what a swing guard is? I'm assuming a lot of guys actually don't know what that is. So it's a, a folding knife, and the guards pivot on the blade, and when you open the blade, the guards swing out and essentially... Um, like a, a old school Italian stiletto, have the guards across to protect your hands. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna, you know. Yeah. So, so essentially, the guards sit on the left side of the handle, and whenever the blade is flies open, the guards swing around with them. And then when the blade locks, the guards are vertically on top of the handle, like a normal guard would be. Correct. So I'm gonna do an automatic. So when you, you know, either bolster release or latch release. And open the knife, the guards will do automatically deploy with the blade. Hmm. Loving it. So, a little old school, a little new, new school. I'll probably do it with some new school materials, 
but it's really an old school design. Hmm. So yeah, that's, I, that's a that's a great one. Damacore blade, Damascus guard. I got gotcha. you. I got you. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, I, I did. I did one a few months ago. CPM one fifty four blade. Uh, Zerk guards, um, front and rear black Damascus bolsters, and mother of pearl scales. Oh wait, that was the one that uh. Yeah. Wait, did that have a nail nick in it? It did not. Uh, it had, had a thumb stud that was made out of Damascus, and it opened with a thumb stud. Okay. All right. Now, the Mother of Pearl, how does that machine? Because it's been like three years since I've used it, and the reason it's been three years is because the last time I used it, it cracked on me. And I, I want to use it on some builds right now. Well, I, I don't machine it because I don't do anything with CNC or water jet. Well, I'm manually I'm, machining it, like for an inlight, for example. Um, as long as you're using a sharp end mill and lots of coolant or even water, um, it should cut well. But, you know, it's natural material, and the way it grows, there could be inclusions in it that you can't necessarily see with your naked eye. But once you grind into it, then mm-hmm. they become apparent. So. Now, is there any way to fill those, like carbon fiber, or it's like it's it's fucked at that point? No, it's it's fucked at that point. Hmm. So that's why it might be another three years until I use it if this doesn't work out. <laughs> well, if you're gonna do an inlay, then it's less likely to to crack, just because you can set it into the handle and you're not gonna see the edges. Whereas on a regular folder. You can see the edges of it. Well, I had when I did it three years ago. I had the top layer crack off, kind of like you know how it's almost almost like layers. I had a whole yep. like I had a layer part crack off, so it was on the surface. So I was like, "Fuck." Well, then you just grind it thinner. There you go. Make it work. Adapt and survive. Knife makers don't make mistakes; they make modifications. <laughs> I always heard uh, knife makers don't mis- make mistakes; they make smaller knives. <laughs> I heard, I heard oh. it was new. Yeah, new designs, right? Well, that's that's for a fixed blade. They turn into smaller knives because if you screw up the grind, they just get narrower. But for folders, okay. there's not a lot of leeway. You, you make small blades, knives. large handles. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about that ratio, golden ratio. Right. What are the bronze ratio? Oh yes, the secondary and 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 important not to not to be forgotten. Yeah, just like the brown note. <laughs> I was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> the brown note was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, Chuck, how so- far are you from Bridgeport, Connecticut? Oh boy. Um, maybe two hours. Uh, okay, no, because I'm, like, I'm looking at a surface grinder over there right now. A lot shore. of bridge boards, like, still kind of just floating around. Yeah, they're, they're, they're mostly all, like, the old surface. If you're looking for any old equipment, surface grinders, anything, it's you. If on Craigslist, you go around this area, it's always in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Dude, New England is, like, yeah. a is a really old old part of the country with uh, old desk part of the country with, with a huge amount of secret machine shops kicking around yeah any old manufacturing towns you, you need any old equipment you're gonna find which it like, which is like every small Massachusetts town yeah so around or there they, it's great for them town. for me I could find any machine I need if I'm willing to drive three to four hours oh yeah well there's one in Chicopee Massachusetts if you're really looking for one 
Well, I want the automatic, but there's this one for a uh, really nice read in, in Bridgeport for eight hundred bucks. Uh, I might get it just because it's cheap, as long as they could load it on their end. But I, I oh. really want like an automatic. Well, this one's automatic. It's a Ko Lee six by eighteen, and it was good. reduced to eleven fifty. But it says open to offers. Oh, it, I think I know what you're talking about. It's I've seen it for like eight months. There's been the yeah. automatic KOE I've seen on Craigslist for like eight months. It's been up there for a while. And if you see one at that cheap for eight months, that means a whole bunch of people have checked it out and it's not worth buying. Because for an Sexual automatic, that's cheap. For surface grinders. I would, yeah. I, I would oblige. Hashtag you sexual ch- favors for Nick, surface you can, grinders. You can check it out when you when you pick up that. Uh, oh, the, the router. Yeah, the router. The What's air the next time you're going to be router. in mass? Uh, probably sometime next month, Never. month after that. <laughs> next no, month. I'll, 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 I can't, you know, standing still is not something I've ever been good at. Sometime next, never. Yeah. Uh, Lebanon? Is that anywhere around? No, I don't get the Your fuck. Answer? No, Lebanon's like, I think Jersey. There's one in Bridgeport, uh, but it's uh, $16,000. Oh, I'm, I'm willing to no spread problem, dude. Up to three grand is what, is what I have to spend right now. Up to $2,500 and a quesarito. Done. That's it. There's a uh, 68 the Dodge Charger in Framingham, Massachusetts. I need to get Okay, pick up. well, this is just going off the rails. Uh, okay, I think we. <laughs> so we've been recording. Point we're trolling Craigslist. I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So are we going to. Um, what, what, what is it? Uh, casual encounters? Um, let's see. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and check out the community forum part of uh, Craigslist. Uh, misconnections. Uh, you have, you have oh, blue eyes. Chuck, and I saw you walking out. No. I, I got one for you. So when did uh, I got two? I got two part question. First, when when did or when do you feel like blade centering and um, and lockup percentages became more important? Was it was it during the transition into sort of the the tactical style, or has that always been there and people just have paid more attention to it lately? Um, I don't think it was always there. I think that people are paying more attention to it now because maybe more makers are making knives with um, higher percentage of lockup. And back then, I think that there were, one, there were less knife makers. Now it seems like there's a new knife maker every week on Instagram, who's got, you know, 30,000 followers. And, but it wasn't an issue back in the day. People Hmm. built knives differently, maybe with higher quality standards than they do now sometimes. Um, There was less CNC involved. What are you trying to say, Chuck? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, the details were important, but just different details. Yeah, the details were different. It was more art mm. than, than anything. And now people look at it as uh, a commodity, so to speak, where they're not as passionate about it. And um, I know guys that only build, buy knives that have instant equity in them instead of buying them just because they like them and they're passionate about Well, it. there's a lot of guys in there for the flip. Yeah. But I think, you know, all the stuff about early lockup or late lockup, all that's new. All okay. that's uh, All right. filthy, filthy casuals nitpicking over lockup on a knife. You know, lock stick, no lock stick. Well, a little bit of lock stick is 
okay, because it shows that the lock is working? <laughs> you don't no, uh, no like, a lock should slick a little bit. Like, if you take, I guarantee, like, most knives you pick up, if literally you don't feel a, a hair of stick and you spine whack it or try to close it, like, forcefully, it's going to it's gonna slip. Because, I mean, like, very rarely when a knife that feels like there's virtually no stick is a solid lock. Mm. That's why I guess let's say I don't like steel lock inserts because uh, they don't stick as much. But if you put any bit of oil on that on that insert, it won't bind because it's oil versus tie, and the oil will keep it from binding. It'll feel great until you try to spine whack it or forcefully close it; it'll slip. So, Chuck, what's your ideal percentage of lock out? Um, so, based on the thickness of the liner, uh, usually that amount. So, if I'm using sixty thousandths okay. liners, which is about a sixteenth of an inch. Then I usually have that much lockup percentage on the knife. So interesting. So I go off the percentage of the blade thickness, not the liner thickness. Because, hmm. like, for example, I make knives with three sixteenths blades, eighth inch, five thirty seconds, and right now these pods are point one. So obviously I can't make the lockup sixty thou because it's gonna be more than a half. Okay, so on a three sixteenths thick blade. What's your lockup? Generally, anywhere from twenty to thirty percent of the thickness of the knife is like is my 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 range. So almost a third. Uh yeah, yeah. Pretty much, uh, not, not go past the third. Yeah, so it's about the same based on your you know depending on what your line oh, okay. thickness is. It's about the same. It's just proportionally the materials are different, but it's about the same amount of lockup. Mm-hmm. I've had knives less. Like I can make five percent lockup great, but five percent tends to want to be very sticky. Ten percent works great, but when it's that little, and now it's not it's not realistic testing. But if a lock was with like ten percent lockup and it feels great, and you spine whack it enough, uh, it'll shear the, the, the lock face because titanium is soft. Yeah. So it'll work great and all, but like eh, what just twenty won't do much. And even like the knife I carry, it started at about twenty five percent. And once it hit about 50, 55 after four years of using it, it just stopped. At a certain point, titanium compacts so much that it just stops moving. Mm. And I spine whack that knife. I I abuse it for four years just to see what it could take. Um, but yeah, it's not. There's not. There's no science to that. It just whatever. There is. I mean, I used to carry a William Henry. I carried a William Henry for twelve years, like a T twelve, and. The lockup was pretty much in the same spot that it's always been in. Like I had to replace the detent ball, but other than that, the lockup hasn't really moved ever. So you get all these guys who say, "Oh, I need early lockup because it's going to wear in." How much use are you putting this knife through to have it move over? Well, that a, much? a thousand flips a day while watching Netflix is a lot of use, man. Come on now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why you need a valley song. No lockup to worry about. Yep. Yeah, I've only designed one, and it seems like it was equally the hardest knife I've ever designed and the easiest because there's, like, no lockup or nothing, so. Mm-hmm. Do, you have a, do you have a latch on it? There's, it's latchless now. Chuck, can we just call you? What's up? Like, can you be our... our, our... Bi-monthly guest or something? Are you are you good to come back with us and uh, and join the podcast for like five or ten minutes? Like yeah. once in a while, like because our goal is to do two maker episodes a month and like yeah. one what's in the shop episode, and we could probably just random knife makers just jump in and talk about what's in their shop for that what's in the shop episode. Yeah.
Yeah, okay. abs- absolutely. I'd be down for that. Yeah, but those those are like twenty minute recordings for what's in the shop. Just kind of what we're working on that month. Uh, we're gonna have probably like a post plate, like post show episodes. So the goal is like three episodes a month. We were pretty good on doing it until uh, the whole Kentucky, I mean Portland, Vegas nonsense. Yeah, we got a little behind. Portland, I was I was moving. We got we got sidetracked a little busy. But now that now that we're back into the swing of things, um, we're definitely gonna be doing those those. Minisodes more often. It would be cool to to have a list of guys we can just kind of ring up and just be like, "Hey, dude, what are you working on? Where can our listeners find you on the internet to see your awesome knives and contact you to possibly purchase one?" Um, you can find me on Instagram under Gidritis Knives. That's where you see the most up to date work that I'm working on. I have a Facebook page, uh, Gidritis Knives. Uh, I also have a secret Facebook group for Gidritis Knives that you have to request to be a member of. Um, and if you want to see pictures of my work, you can just Google Gidritis Knives, look under images, and um, see the variety of styles of knives that I make. Awesome. And we'll Figured have his full name and spelling and, and the description of yeah, the yeah, podcast. We'll tag, tag you and all that, and all that goodness. Um, another awesome episode of the Bladeology podcast with our first, first guest, Chuck. Thank you so much for, for coming on here and, and talking trash with us and and, um, and sharing your thoughts on, on everything that um, everybody is involved in. Knives. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Very cool. Guys, do you have any uh, any final thoughts for our listeners out there? Um, make sure to wipe twice. Nick Chupin out. Uh, I'll leave you with a quote in Latin. Nile Verum Nisi Moors. There you go. Uh, Elijah out. Right on. Uh, thanks so much, guys. Uh, Jeremiah out. And Chuck Adritus out. <laughs> <laughs>